Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. Do you have any thoughts as to the safety issues here? And do you want to make sure that everyone is completely vaccinated? How do I answer this? Well, I hadn't considered the emergency use authorization aspect of this. I mean, I I saw this story and I felt like I'm not sure this is new. I mean, places already do this. Chris, I'm sure your kids need a bunch of shots to attend the academy for the offspring of the pretentious or wherever they go. It seems like uh, I believe it's the elite. It's the elite who have fostered big brain children the tony kornheiser show is on now always makes me happy when gary and chris are on the show and yell at each other makes me happy michael is here six feet one inches socially distanced away at uncle benny's table nigel is not with us today nigel has some personal business so sean is going to do two jobs his job and nigel's job we can all do nigel's job then we'll find out he doesn't really have a job and no point never bringing him back now where was that button again yeah it's not (laughs) you can be able to do that you can press the button um, I just wanted to start with a bunch of email that, that sort of float out in space and have no particular connection to the other email, and I wanted to uh, explain these. This, this comes from a guy named Mark Matza, M-A-T-Z-A, and he writes as a longtime little podcast fan and countless hours post-golf at Engineers Club watching PTI, fellow Long Islander from Roslyn, and the woman to whom I'm related by marriage, a Camp Kium alum, I thought I would drop you a note of thanks for your terrific work with your son Michael at Uncle Benny's table. These COVID days are difficult at best. Your show keeps a smile on my face driving to play golf in West Hampton. I also want to let you know that your sponsors are succeeding. Uh, Three suits and a tuxedo from Indochino for my daughter's wedding. A chair from X chair and not having the command of the English language is Mr. Tony. I have one subscription to Grammarly and I always use the code. Please keep expanding the news blocks. Eliza needs to work to pay his staff. Stay safe, you cheap old curmudgeon, a loyal little. By the way, you can't be as miserable a human being as you pretend. Your love for Chessie shows your real character. And this is fine. But there's one thing in here that is tremendously disturbing to me. Who is his wife? A, a, an alum, a Cuma alum. Name, name your wife. I mean, maybe I know her, you know? I mean, it sort of left me hanging. So if Mark Matz is listening, and I'm sure he'll listen to it eventually, who are you married to? Odds maybe I know a, her. Odds are it's a Wendy. Oh, you think it's a Wendy? Wendy. Yeah, Wendy. Generational name. Yeah, it's a, Wendy and Nancy are generational names. Lovely names. Here's one from Keith. It says, You're featured mu- you featured music from Brody Bond on the Wednesday show. I know him. Way back to our acapella days at JMU. Shout out to the Madison Project. Maybe Brody, Michael, and I can do an attic pop-up concert. Isn't that nice? Ba, 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 uh. yeah. yeah, that's right. So that's Keith. And then from David in Des Moines. Watching my Cubs trying to sweep the Dodgers on Wednesday, down in the eighth inning, three to two, nervously trying to figure out how the Cubs can come back when the Dodgers trot out Blake Trinan. I say, hey, I know that guy. Mr. Tony wanted him deported when he was Nationals reliever. Finally, my David Aldridge moment. I knew the Cubs were fine after listening to Tony talk about the relief appearances he blew in Washington. He promptly allowed the Cubs to tie the game immediately. (laughs) Little joys in life. So that made me happy. Um, And also... Uh, I know I, I say this every year, and I'm going to say it now. Mother's Day is Sunday, and the only present I ever want for Father's Day is to be able to play golf on Mother's Day. And I'm going to. Not only am I going to play golf on Mother's Day, but so far, the people in my group are three women and me, all of whom are moms. So, I mean, you got to get a well, pass happy on Mother's that. Day. Yeah, you got to get a pass on that. And speaking of Mother's Day, this is not in the uh, rotation today, Spoonful of Comfort. But they have sponsored within the last two weeks, and you know it's the soup 
and the rolls and the cookies and the lovely packaging. The and ladle. It, yeah, it's a lovely, lovely gift on Mother's Day and probably a lovely gift at a variety of other days, but they wanted to do it on Mother's Day. And I never read this. And this comes from the founder and the president of Spoonful of Comfort. My name is Marty Weimer, M-A-R-T-I, so I'm going to assume it's a she. My name is Marty Weimer, and I wanted to sincerely thank you for helping me and my company, Spoonful of Comfort, with our upcoming Mother's Day gift promotion, our first national radio advertising campaign ever. Spoonful is a small business now catching wind in our sales, and we truly believe that the combination of our product, packaging, messaging, and brand can connect with your audience, and using you as a spokesperson is certainly central to that. We're also excited to send you the product after doing so several years ago for the first time. One of your listeners heard your request for soup on the air and arranged a gift package for you. You were very kind to give us a shout-out on the air that turned into some business for us. Thank you. We are now back and ready to do that in a more formal way now across a number of radio shows and podcasts, too. I started Spoonful of Comfort shortly after my mother was to go through treatment for cancer. In seeking out something to give her that showed her how much she meant to me, no other gift really resonated. It's that main premise that years later goes into every package we sent. It's just, this is a lovely, it's that a lovely sentiment. letter. It's, it's a lovely, lovely letter from Marty Weimer, who is the founder and president. And of what's so great is we didn't see that letter when we first opened no. the box because it was no. within the packaging. So you had that natural reaction before you found this connection to yeah. the founder. All right. So there's something else I want to deal with now. And I found out about this last night. And I'll explain to you on the timeline. We start taping this show at about 735 in the morning. Um, we're usually done about a quarter to nine in the morning. And For those it, interested, we go about five minutes earlier every six months. Like to go. Yeah, it, Nigel and I are joking as to when we get, <laughs> when we get routinely before 6, 6A. 6 in the morning. So well, when the light is up, we do that. So um, the show drops, and, and by drops, I mean it's available to you. What time, Sean, around 10.30 or 11 or something like that? Uh, pandemic, it's usually by 9.30. 9.30, okay. Some, some days it's a day late, but that's, that's, okay. uh, that's up. Yeah. higher up. So let me, let me explain this timeline. So last night I'm talking uh, about an entirely uh, unrelated subject. I'm talking to um, Matt Rennie, who's an editor at the Washington Post and a friend of mine, and I'm, I'm advising him to read this particular story in Sports Illustrated by John Wertheim about Pleasant Colony, a horse that won the Derby and the Preakness 40 years ago. And it's a murder mystery story. And I was utterly unaware of all of these things. And I'm, going to, I'm telling all of you that are listening, read this story. It's really good. <clears throat> I've never met John Wertheim. I don't know him. I know he's worked for Sports Illustrated for a long time. And I think he works for 60 Minutes, CBS. But I don't know him. But this story, he also wrote a story a couple of months ago about Pete Axtell, which I thought was really good. But I had skin in the game there because I was mentioned nicely in the story. I'm not in this. And it's really good. So we're talking about that, and Rennie says, <coughs> excuse me, he says, do you know about Boz? And I go, what? And he says, oh, oh, um, maybe you'll be able to use this tomorrow. Boz is going to announce, Tom Boswell is going to announce his retirement tomorrow online, and that will come out. I think the, the time frame of it was our show would have had to be done, and that will come out around 11 o'clock, maybe something like that. So I'm not spilling the beans because you're not going to hear this before then. I'm not like stepping on Boz's toes. But I got, I got this from Rennie. <clears throat> Sorry for coughing. I got this from Rennie. And then I got a note from Barry's Verluga, who's going to be on the show in a little while, saying if you wanted to talk about Boz, he'd love to talk about Boz. And we'll do a little bit of that. But I'm capable of talking about Boz. Tom Boswell, of whom it was once said, 
by Big John Thompson. And this is a direct quote. Tommy Boswell writes for the heavens. Nobody ever said that about me. And Big John said it about Boz. And they knew each other for an awfully long time because both of them were born and raised in Washington, D.C. And Boz's first stuff for the Washington Post when he started right around 1969 or 1970. He's been doing it for six decades. Six decades as a sports writer. He used to do high school sports. We all started in high school sports. When I started at Newsday, I started in high school sports. That's, that was the path to being a sports writer at a big city paper. You started on high school sports. So Boz and, and John knew each other and knew each other well and loved each other, loved each other. Um, and Boz, Tom Boswell, smarter than I, went to Amherst with Jimmy Steinman. Um, I, if I say, if I slur Harper College, if I really slur Harper, it sounds a little bit like Harvard, but if I really slur Binghamton, it still sounds like Binghamton. Um, Boz was at Amherst and he and I are the same age and he and I started at the same time and he and I followed a similar path. In fact, when Dave Kindred left the Washington Post as a columnist to go to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Ben Bradley came to Boz and came to me and said, you, neither of you were good enough to replace him one-on-one, so we'll hire both of you to do it. And I didn't really want to do it. I don't know if Boz wanted to do it. I didn't really want to, but I was, you, you couldn't really say no to Ben Bradley. And so in 1984, both Boswell and I started writing sports columns. The other columnist at that time was Ken Denlinger, and uh, then Wilbon, four or five years later, took Denlinger's spot. And that was the three of us for 10, 12, 15 years, Boswell and Wilbon and Kornheiser. Um, Boz and I are not, we are friendly. We are not friends. We are not pals. You're not pals with everybody you work with. We have very different ways of looking at the sports writing business. We had very different needs in terms of being columnists. Very different. I needed to be around people. Boz needed to be by himself. I had to be in the office all the time and work with a bunch of editors and Boz called in and says, here's what I'm writing and here it is. And we were just different. He made his reputation and a sterling reputation it is and was, he made it as a baseball writer. He wrote a bunch of books, the intellectualization of baseball that I make fun of all the time, but really it's just envy on my part because Boz picked out something that he understood very, very well, baseball, and wrote books. One of the titles was, I think, Why Time Begins on Opening Day. They were huge selling books, fabulously well-reviewed. Everybody, everybody who writes sports books for a living looks at Tom Boswell and says, wow, he got it, he understood it. And then he was also uh, involved in golf. We worked, you have to understand, when you work together as columnists, you sort of, you're, you're sort of in separate orbits, but every once in a while you bump into one another and you have to, you know, I would say, Boz, what are you writing? Or he'd say, Tony, what are you writing? And we never, ever tracked over each other. We never did in all the years that we worked together and went to the same events, we never tracked over each other. We had enormous respect for the other person and gave wide berth to the other person and found something to do that did not conflict with the other person. Golf was one of his specialties as well. We went to the 1986 US Open together on Long Island at Shinnecock that Ray Floyd won. Um, and he wrote the leads, he wrote the game stories and I wrote the columns. And then one day he wrote a column as well as a game story and it was fine and we sat with each other you know, writing, but we, without even talking to each other, we wrote different things. I sort of always wanted to be entertaining first and loud first. And you have to understand what a columnist's voice is. Not everybody is suited to write a column. They're not. 
the greatest writers in the world, not all of them are columnists because they don't have that need to put their opinion out there and back up their opinion. And Boz is, has a column voice and I have a column voice and Wilbon has a column voice that over the years, but Wilbon now is just screaming almost all the time. That's all he does. He even screams at me. Um, so Boz had a natural columnist voice and you know, then he, you got to write, if you're a columnist, you got to write about other things. You got to write about basketball, got to write about football. You got to write about hockey. And people would say, well, what does Boz know about hockey? Or what does Tony know about hockey? What does Tony know about bas basketball? And the answer is I know enough and Boz knew enough. Okay. Cause when you have that voice, you know what you're doing and you sit down and you figure it out and, and the object to get to with a column is a linear piece of work that defends your thought. And in order to do that well, you have to consider all the opposing voices and reject them intellectually so that nobody can say, ah, but what about this? Because you've already thought about that. And I did that, and Boz did that, and Wilbon does that. You know, so, I mean, that just sort of comes with the territory. He wrote, wrote sports, I think he may have started in 1969 or may have started in 70. I started in 70. He wrote through the 70s. He wrote through the 80s. He wrote through the 90s. He wrote through the aughts. He wrote through the teens. He was writing into the 20s. It's six decades. It's a long and brilliant career. Anything that I have accomplished, any halls of fame or walls of fame, so is he. So has he. Our careers are parallel lines, but they meet pretty much in the same spot down the road. Um, he's a great writer. He's a great thinker. I always made fun of him when he would quote some French philosopher like La Rochefoucauld. I go, what are you doing with this? But there was a lot of envy in that for me because he brought an intellectual look to writing sports. He brought the full measure and weight of all of his learning to writing sports. I believe this is true that his dad was, was the head of the Library of Congress and Boz came from a house where learning was prized. And he is very learned on a, on a variety of topics. He stayed. I mean, I left, right? I, I get antsy. I mean, I leave and do something else. I've had all the careers you can have. I had the writing career. I had the radio and podcast career. I had the TV career. And some of them just dropped on my lap. Could Boz have done that? I'm sure he could have done that. I don't think he wanted to do it. I think he wanted to stay true to the purity of of writing sports, you know, and uh, Wilbon left, I left, a bunch of people leave and do other things and gain credibility and fame in those new things that you do. And Boz stayed there. And I don't want to say he stayed there and just plugged away. He stayed there because he was great. He was great at it and he loved it. Um, and, and he's going to retire as of, I think I'm told in June, I mean, we'll have Barry on and Barry will know more of the details about this, but I, I stand next to him in great awe of his talent and the length and breadth of his career and everything he was able to accomplish. And, and even more so, it's easy for me to do this. This comes easily. It's easy for me to do television. And the fact that I had the opportunity to do different things always kept me sort of fresh and kept me involved and interested because you, you attack something from a different angle and a different viewpoint. And I admire like crazy the fact that Boz stayed there and chopped down the trees. I mean, that's what he did. He loved doing what he did. I'm sure he loves it to this moment. And, um, you know, this is, you know, this is my thank you to Boswell.
And we will come back. Barry's Verluga will join us. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Policy Genius ad. It's May and things are blooming. Why not see if your home and auto insurance savings can bloom too? We're almost halfway through the year. Head into June with one less thing to worry about. See if you're overpaying for home and auto insurance. Is your home and auto policy almost up for renewal? Let Policy Genius look for a lower rate for you. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare home and auto insurance in one place. They can help you find home and auto coverage similar to what you have now, but at a lower price. They've shop, saved shoppers up to $1,055 per year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance. Getting started is easy. First, head to policygenius.com. Answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property, then Policy Genius takes it from there. They will compare rates from America's top insurers, from Progressive to Allstate. You can find flow to find your lowest quotes. She's a Harper girl. Well, Binghamton girl. The Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more, including bundling, her favorite word, your home and auto policies. If they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they're going to switch you over for free. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. You're listening, You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This comes to us from Rob Frank. He has submitted his songs before. He said, it's another song for consideration. It's called Cold. It's the last track from my most recent release, Isolation. More songs and news can be found at robfrank.ca. What does CA mean, Michael? Hmm, I'm not sure here. CA. Uh, thank you, as always, for letting me be a small part of the show. I truly enjoy all the best to everyone else on the pod. Rob Frank singing Cold. You can listen to it at the end of the show without me interrupting it. And he plays in Barry's Verluga. And I got I to gotta tell you, I started talking about Boz and I choked up at the end um, because our careers uh, are, you know, I mean, we're the same age and we've done the same things. I mean, I moved away from sports writing and he stayed and I just, you know, I have enormous admiration for him. Of course, I make fun of him because I do that to people that I like. Um, we were not... We're not close, Boz and I. We're friendly. We're not friends. But you can't be friends with everybody. I mean, we respect each other and liked each other. And you've worked with him for a, a, a long time now. Um, and you do the same thing. And so we'll, I'll just start with this. Your thoughts on, on Boz. The difficult, the, the difficult thing for me, Barry, is that, you know, I, I'm looking at people my own age who are saying I'm done. And I'm going, you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> why, why am I not done? So anyway, what are your well, thoughts? I mean, I... Too many thoughts, Tony. I mean, it's been going on 18 years in press boxes with Boz for me. And, and when he called me yesterday, I mean, you talk about getting choked up. It's just, it makes so much sense at some level. And, and at some level, you know, before the pandemic, when he would arrive at the ballpark, like most often he did it with more energy than anybody, any reporter that, that was there and, and yep. more ideas and, and, He'll show you a notebook written in five different color inks of thought that thoughts that he had had going into such and such a game. And um, I mean, I, I told him yesterday, and I've said this to others, you know, long before he, retirement was even in the equation that, you know, very, very few people get to work with their heroes. And, and when I walked in the door at the Washington Post in, in 2003, um, I wasn't a kid. I was already 10 years into the business, but, but the columnists at the post in 2003 were Tom Boswell, Sally Jenkins, Tony Kornheiser, and Michael Wilbon. And, and for somebody of any age who grew up reading newspapers and reading sports writers, 
there was no way for me to even begin to comprehend that, that, and I wouldn't have characterized that those people were my colleagues, but, but over time, um, that's what they became. And, and Boz more than any others, because just by baseball and golf and, you know, the Washington football team, we, we, we shared so many spaces and so many conversations. Um, and it just, the admiration, um, is, is real, not because of, you know, time spent, but because of, of watching a person work and, and the care that's put into it and, and, you know, just countless hours prior to arriving at a game that you may see, or you may not, he's the only person, um, who I hear in current press boxes saying, you know, I went back and watched the Nats game again and I thought this, or I taped the Redskins game and I fast forwarded between all the downs and I, I ended up thinking this and, and, you know, um, world series where he would come with an idea before the game and he would start typing before the game and the game would shift five different ways and he would not stop typing and meet the moment in those five different ways. And, and on a, on a given night, depending on what happened, file three different columns because the, the game had, had changed in front of him and he wasn't going to get beat by the game. He was going to beat the game. Um, he's one of the best of all time. He's just a joy to be around. Um, the Washington post sports section is worse today than it was yesterday. And he's in a way the, the last link to that great section that, that you were such a big part of. Um, I know Sally's still here and Sally's the best. I, I, I love Sally. Um, and I believe in, in who we have and what we can do going forward. But, but Boz is such a tie to what it was and what it can be. Um, just eternal admiration and thankfulness for being able to work beside him all these years. Six decades, six different decades writing for the Washington Post. It's pretty damn good. It's pretty damn good. Let me just tell people that um, the Boz thing sort of snuck up on, on me and I talked about it and asked Barry about it. But the reason that I originally asked Barry to be on this show today was Tom Wilson. It, hockey is rarely a front page story around the country. Hockey rarely leads the PTI show because Mike and I don't really know much about hockey. Um, and hockey has led it two or three times now because of Tom Wilson, because of the fact that he wasn't suspended, because that the Rangers did an escalation that I have never seen. I've In my whole life, I've never seen a major metropolitan franchise. And by the way, the New York Rangers, that's the largest franchise market in all of the National Hockey League. I've never seen a major franchise go from point A to point Z in 10 minutes and say, and, and actually demand that the head of, of player safety, somebody really high up on the authority chain in a sport, just declare him unfit for his job. I'm just, it was unbelievable, Barry. And, and all of this could have been avoided had George Paros, who himself was a fighter and played like 474 games and had only 36 points, but 169 fights, had George Paros suspended Tom Wilson for even one game. For even one game, and none of this happens. And what the Rangers did yesterday, and I'm going to let you talk when I just finish this, what the Rangers did the other day when they fought right away with the Capitals, that was not aimed at Tom Wilson. That was aimed at Gary Bettman and George Paros. That was to embarrass the National Hockey League. And Bettman's response was to fine them 
$250,000 for what they said and to, in effect, to me, and feel free to disagree, to me, in effect, um, sanctify fighting and say fighting's fine. Shut up. Fighting's good. Stop criticizing people. Go. Take it away. Am I wrong? Where am I wrong on this? Well, I mean, there's, there's, you know, this is a car that's, you know, doing skid S's all over the highway here. I mean, there's so many directions to go. I mean, go, but go to the beginning for me and, and um, centrally to Tom Wilson, a, a player who has been suspended five times uh, in the past. And the reason he was, he was fined this time and not suspended um, was for a play in the crease where he was on the back of a Ranger, Buchnevich, uh, and, um, you know, shoved, punched the back of his head when he was in a prone position that led to the melee um, going on there. Mm -hmm. To me, Tom Wilson, knowing he is Tom Wilson, and that whether the nation, sporting nation's eyes are on him or not, the NHL's eyes and the, the opponent's eyes are always on him because of his history. He has got, he is so important to this team that he's got to not shove that player in the back of the head and then start the trickle down there. I agree with you that the Rangers statement was jarring over the top. Uh, I, I, I mean, to both go at the player by name and a, a league executive, as you said, not, you know, not a low level, you know, intern, but, but a person who has been charged with what the NHL deems as something that's very, you know, important and paramount in keeping its players safe was amazing. But it's also, um, you know, this was a week in which the NHL tried to play it both ways. Um, I don't believe that Tom Wilson should be suspended for being Tom Wilson. I think all these players should be viewed for the incident at, at hand. But the NHL is trying to say, you know, we're eliminating the Broad Street bullies in the 1970s um, brand of hockey, you know, the slap shot kind of anything goes um, kind of way of the past. Um, but they, they clearly left it where the Rangers felt that if you're not going to do justice, we're going to have to do justice. And this sort of, this sort of, you know, slapstick, we drop the puck, but then we drop the gloves one stick, uh, one second later, um, was the only, you knew that that was going to happen. Now, did you know it was going to be six fights in the first four and a half minutes? Maybe not. I didn't know that. that. I didn't, right. That was a particular, you knew there was going to be one fight off the face-off, and you knew they were going to go engage Wilson at some point, which, which they did. Now, I mean, there's a perverse way to get to what you said at the top, which is, hockey doesn't find itself at the top of PTI uh, very often, no. and and no. is this a backwards way to to get attention to the sport? I, I think that's a, a a little a little strange, but um, it was. I mean, it was a wild wild week, and. Um, and while I get and have listened to both sides, I, I can't, I still can't, I still think the thing that stands out more than anything is that Rangers statement and the $250,000 fine that, that followed. That's not how business is done in professional sports. You're, you're airing your laundry um, in public uh, leagues and commissioners have a vested interest in, in keeping that stuff in house. So to see it, as you said, put out by a major market, like there's the, you know, are the Montreal Canadiens or the Toronto Maple Leafs bigger in the NHL than, than the New York Rangers? Maybe, Maybe but Maybe. but they don't play in New York and they right. don't get that, that American audience um, locked in. Um, and, and I'll, I'll add, even though they say it's not related, 
the team president and, and the GM of the Rangers were fired the very next day. Um, that's supposed to be for underperformance, but they would have been the ones who approved that statement as well. So um, a lot going on in, in a very small, niche world that, that spilled onto the kind of mainstream this week. I would have suspended him for a variety of things, including his recidivism. I would have suspended him for smashing that other kid down on the ice when the kid doesn't have a helmet and almost could have cracked his skull. But I would have suspended him most of all for his posing afterwards. When he took his jersey off and he started crowing and cursing, I would have said, you know what? This is such a bad look for us. If I'm Gary Bettman, I'm overruling Paros. I... I'm giving him a game. I'm not giving him 10 games. I'm giving him a game because I'm saying, Tom Wilson, you're not bigger than the sport. You're not. You're, you're, you're antithetical to our aims right now. Get back in line, please. That's what I would have done. Would you have done that? And that's, that's the completely reasonable part. And the part where, um, you know, this is a, a, an athlete I know and have known and have, because I'm here, have heard the capital side of their arguments about, you know, is this guy a thug or, or is he out to, to hurt people? Um, I've, I've come to kind of understand that, but that, that I believe that there were two choices that Tom Wilson made here that differentiated from the other five times he's been suspended. The other five times he's been suspended, or I'm sorry, not the other, the five times he's been suspended um, have all come in the run of play, he has checked someone high. He, uh, somebody has ended up with a concussion. Um, he's blindsided somebody coming across the ice. Um, the kind of play that, uh, given what we know about concussions now, the NHL is trying to eliminate. What he did in this instance, first in shoving Bucevich in the back of the head, and then, you're right, Tony, flexing afterwards, like <laughs> I'm the toughest guy here, those yeah. are... If, if they're not conscious choices, then that means he's lost his conscious. He's, he's not been able to control himself in that moment. And, and that, that can't be allowed. Um, the flex was one-upsmanship. It was showy. It was theater. It, was, it, it felt unhinged given what had just happened. And, and um, Panarin, the, the Ranger star who had um, – jumped on Wilson's back uh, and then was, you know, summarily dismissed and, and, and body slammed to the, to the ground. I mean, that was a, that was a scary looking thing in the moment to not understand that. And instead to um, do the showmanship thing, I think was, uh, I, 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 you know, I kind of agree with you. If you're going to suspend him for any of these actions, that one I get because it's, it's, it's celebrating a part of the game that the NHL says it, it no longer wants to be associated with. Yeah. I would have suspended him and I would have said conduct unbecoming. I would have done it like that for one day. I'll get you out of here on this. You've been around him. You've covered him. I don't know him at all. Wilbon thinks he's just a garden level thug. And I don't. He's a, he's a skilled player. He's a tough guy and a skilled player. I don't think he's a thug, but I wonder what he's like to chat with. Oh, I mean, here's the thing. And I, I you know, you got to, you worry about being a homer in these situations, but this is a, he's a white collar kid from Toronto. Uh, his dad's a banker. He grew up in the junior hockey circuit. Um, he is as pleasant. And, and I think people would say this about some enforcers over the course of, of, you know, time in the NHL, that, that they're pleasant people off the ice. But I, I agree with you also, Tony, it's very, very easy to think um, this guy's a goon. He's a thug because he's been suspended five times. 
and he's 6'4", 220, and skates with uncommon speed for a guy that size. But the, the thugs that we're talking about, um, a traditional you know, NHL enforcer, play 10 minutes on the fourth line and are, are put out there um, to, to, to provide safety. You know, yeah. this guy plays yeah. with Alex Ovechkin and Nicholas Backstrom, and he yeah, has for years, one line. and he is, yeah. he's a top six forward. I mean, he, and he's, he's out there in all sorts of situations, not because he can fight, but because he's a, an excellent hockey player. Um, he's earned those situations. He's a huge part of this team. Um, and he's a, he's going to be a huge part of this team when when Ovechkin and, and Backstrom, the two stars, are are retired. So um, that's my soliloquy on on Tom Wilson. Okay. Thanks. I just I think it's a very I think it's a big story. You know, I I do. I think it's a big. I think it goes to the heart of how does the NHL define itself going forward. I think they blew it. I think the fact that all they did was find the Rangers is just absurd to me. I'm not saying they shouldn't have done that because the Rangers challenge authority in a way that you can't do in, a fen- again, a phenomenal escalation of what they ought to be doing. But they didn't even address the fighting except to say it was okay by not addressing it, right? And that's how I felt anyway. No, you're right. not wrong. You're not. And then the, the further irony is, is um, Buchnevich, the kid from the Rangers who initially had his head shoved into the ice by Wilson, um, he gets suspended a game because he cross-checked uh, a cap in the in the next game. So, um, you know, you you could look at the ledger of this thing and say, five thousand dollar fine for Wilson on one side, two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine for the Rangers on on the other side. No suspensions uh, for the Caps, one suspension for the Rangers, and and think, how did the scale tip this way? Um, I do think you're right, Tony, and and. Um, that's probably the best discussion. The best way to frame it is what is the NHL and what does it want to be? Um, is it a league for speed and skill and finesse with strength and, and power mixed in? Um, or is it still uh, a league in which, you know, vigilante justice is, is carried out um, with regularity uh, in a way that yeah. you don't see it in any other sport? Thank you, Barry. Talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. Barry's Verluga, boys and girls. You can read him in the Washington Post all the time. We will take a break. Tim Kirkchen will join us when we return. We'll talk about baseball. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is a Simply Safe ad. Simply Safe is an award winning home security system. So you know it's engineered with the latest technology that you want to keep your family safe. But what really sates. What really sets Simply Safe apart, boy, that's hard to read, is its people. Highly trained security experts are always there for you when you need them most. These are people who truly care about keeping you safe. When an alarm goes off, a person who cares will be there for you with a phone call to make sure you're okay. When an emergency happens, a person who cares will be there for you to get fire and police responders to your front door right away. Even if you're just having a problem setting up your system, a person who cares will be there for you with a friendly chat and a quick resolution. The bottom line is when you need the most, Simply Safe will be there 24-7 with people who care and experts trained to not only keep you safe, but also to make you feel safe. To learn more about how Simply Safe can help protect you and your family, visit simplysafe.com slash Tony, S-I-M-P-L-I, simplysafe.com slash Tony. Visit today to customize your system and get a free security camera. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's really nothing to lose. That is simplysafe.com slash Tony. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Tim Wildsmith in Nashville, Tennessee. And he writes, I wrote this song called Second Chance on a Lonely Night in Omaha. 
And a few years later, the girl I wrote it about agreed to marry me. Isn't that nice? Hearing you and Pat Forty talk about Omaha inspired me to send it in, and I'm sure I'm not the only little who'll be rooting for his daughter to swim her way onto the Olympic team when she's there next month. By the way, have you ever been to Omaha? I have. It's a surprisingly great city, and the College World Series is an absolutely fantastic sporting event. I think it should be on everyone's bucket list. Um, uh, Brian Windhorst lives in Omaha. I have been to Omaha. It is the site of two of the greatest George Clooney movies, Michael Clayton and Up in the Air. They are both set largely in Omaha. And I'm really happy to know that Tim Wildsmith wrote this song about a girl in Omaha and later married her. That's really cool. You can listen to his music. You can listen to Rob Frank's music without me interrupting it at the end of the podcast. And Michael, if people as talented as that want to send in their music, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonycornothershow.com. And that .ca, that's a Canadian domain. Oh, that's what it is? Yep. Okay, good. So then Rob Frank is Canadian. We I have imagine. to assume that. All right. Uh, Tim Kirkton joins us now. You must have spent you must have spent time in Omaha. You must have covered the College World Series in your life, right? Yes. The first year I covered it, Tony, was the only year that we had a walk-off home run to end the College World Series. Warren Morris of LSU, who had not hit a home run the entire regular season and who was going to go to medical school and who was hitting ninth in the order, hit a walk-off home run to win the College World Series for LSU. He later played in the big leagues for a bunch of years and was a decent major league player, but it was one of the great stories I've ever covered is the ninth hitter with no homers going to medical school hit the only walk-off homer in the history of the College World Series. And then I went last year, two years ago, and it was absolutely tremendous again. But I was really taken and struck by how great college baseball is today. The programs, uh, everything put together, It's college baseball is so much better now than it was, say, 30 years ago. Why do you think that is? Does that mean it's because nobody's going to the minor leagues anymore in the same way that they did then? No, I just think that universities have said this is a great college baseball program and we're going to build a better facility for them. Go look at the University of Virginia, what they have now. Go to, go to Mississippi State and see that. Of course, Vanderbilt. It's amazing and it's great because college baseball is now a very, very important feeder to the big leagues. So it's, the minor leagues are great. This has nothing to do with the minor leagues. But if you're going to go to four-year college and they're going to treat you well and they're going to develop you properly, you're going to the big leagues a whole lot sooner. And that's the greatness of college baseball, especially these days. Can I tell you that my alma mater, Binghamton University, which is near your alma mater, um, can I tell you that the largest donation ever to the school was given a year ago and it's like 50 million dollars and it's to build a baseball stadium in Binghamton for the team isn't that great again Tony this is great this is great people keep thinking that baseball is dying and yet college baseball is tremendous and let's keep it up and I uh, Omaha is one of the great venues and one of the great you know two weeks of baseball that you'll ever see um, I will tell people out loud that uh, during the break when Tim got on the show, I mentioned the Boswell circumstance that he was going to announce his retirement today and that it would take effect at some point in June. Why don't you say what you said growing up reading Boz? 
Well, he's not that much older than me, but I grew up watching him. And as a young, aspiring baseball writer, which is, I knew I wanted to do that when I was 12, I read everything Tom Boswell wrote. And I've read everything he's written till today. And he's one of the great baseball writers of all time. And again, Tony, not to be corny here, the only way you can really cover this game properly is to love the game. It will tear you to pieces if you try to cover it without loving it. And Boz loves it as much as anyone I've ever met. And there's a lot, lot to say about that. Um, there's a whole bunch of things we need to cover at baseball news. And I think the first thing is the release of Albert Pujols by the Angels. Uh, the Albert Pujols who's playing now is not anywhere near the Albert Pujols who the Angels sought after 10, 10 years ago. Um, but I was surprised... I was surprised he was released unless maybe they went to him and said, you know, we're going to sit you for a while. And maybe he said, then, then cut me loose. Do you have anything on that? Do you know why they did it? Yeah, they did it because he's not the productive player that he used to be. Of course, no one was as productive as him basically (laughs) for the first 10 years of his career, but they have a first baseman in Jared Walsh who has really turned the corner. That guy can hit now. Plus, the DH is taken because Shohei Otani has 10 yeah. homers and over 30 strikeouts. The first guy to do that since Babe Ruth in 1919. So there was no room for Albert Pujols. He naturally wants to play every day. He wants to play every day at first base, and there was no spot for him. So I, I was surprised too, Tony, I must say. But um, when you really look at this, this was the right thing to do for the Angels and potentially – if Albert Pujols can find another place to play, it'll be the best thing for him. But at this moment, I'm not sure there's a place out there where Albert Pujols can play every day. And I, I'm a little worried for his sake that there might not be a place out there for him to play even part-time. So the two things, the two places that come to mind, one is St. Louis where he had all that success, but they've got Goldschmidt at first base and there's no DH in the National League. <laughs> and then... The White Sox with Tony Larusa, who managed him those days with with the Cardinals. Do you, you you're not optimistic about either of those? I take it. Yeah, I'm not, and I wish I was because I love great players. And Albert Pujols, for me, after Lou Gehrig and Jimmy Fox, is the greatest first baseman of all time, and he shouldn't have to have his career end this way. However, you're right. The Cardinals don't have a spot for him without the DH, and the no. White Sox have a bunch of DHs on their team, and they have an everyday first baseman who won the MVP of the league last year. So I don't think it's completely out of the question of him going to the White Sox, but I just don't see the fit, and I hope there is a fit for Albert Pujols because he should be able to retire on his terms, and that's not the case as of this moment. Let me stay with the White Sox for a second. This was a story that we did yesterday on PTI. I'm close to Tony LaRusso's age, and I like Tony LaRusso very much. I've been around him here and there and always found him smart and engaging and like him. And he didn't know the rules. He didn't know the extra inning rule. Um, I don't know that that's a function of being 76, but I don't know that it isn't either. Uh, I don't know that his coaches and his players helped him at all, but I don't know that he paid attention if they tried to. You probably know more than I. I, You got to know the rules, don't you? You got to. 
Yes, and I'm not defending Tony La Russa here. There is no defending someone, a manager, who doesn't know the extra inning rule, however bizarre it might be. But yeah. seriously, where are his players? Where is his bench coach? Where yeah. are the other coaches to say, no, you don't do that. This is the rule. But it still shocks me because I'm not sure I've ever met anyone as sharp and as in tune to everything going on around him like Tony Russa. So I'm not going to say he's too old to understand. I'm not going there. But he should have known that rule, and I was stunned that he didn't know the extra inning rule no matter how arcane it is. Yeah, and it's and it's it's within the last couple of years. I mean, it's it, it's not baseball didn't start this way with putting a person on second base in the tenth inning. That's all of this is new and how you arrive at who that person is. But I agree with you. You got coaches there. You got coaches there who who are supposed to say, Tony, hold it, just hold it for one second. We don't have to put that pitcher out there. We don't have to, and they didn't help him at all. Right. Tony knew what the rule was about that we start with a runner on second base. He just didn't know that if Which the pitcher guy? makes yep. the last out, you can put somebody else in there so we can keep the pitcher healthy. Again, for him to not know that is amazing to me, but I repeat, somebody's got to help him uh, no matter what. Three no-hitters already in baseball, four if you count Bumgarner. Um, on pace for some record number of no-hitters, altogether possible that by the end of the year, there will just be three and four if you count Bumgarner and it'll look like any other year, but doesn't look like that now in in early May. Bad for baseball or good for baseball? Well, it's good for baseball because anybody who throws a no-hitter like John Beans, given the story that that guy's journey is a great story, and anytime anyone throws a no-hitter, I am going to celebrate it. I don't care if he walks seven guys, as Joe Cowley once did, and Doug Rader told me he pitched so badly that I didn't even shake his hand after the game. You can have some <laughs> bad no-hitters, you can have some great ones, and John Means's was great. But on the other side, Tony beyond the unbelievably overpowering pitching that we see today. This is not a good sign for baseball that we've had three no-hitters already. We've lost the value of the hit in today's game. And our young executives and our young hitting coaches are telling our hitters, we're not interested in you hitting a ground ball through that hole over there. We're not interested in you hitting the ball in the opposite field. We only care about you doing significant damage by getting the ball up in the air. We're interested in your exit velocity and your launch angle, not whether you get a hit or not. Dusty Baker told Ryan Zimmerman, I'm not interested in your exit velocity. I'm interested in your exit hits. And we've gotten so far away from that notion. Tony, in the month of April, we had 1,092 more strikeouts than hits. We never had a month like that in Major League history. Last year, the Reds had more walks than singles in a wonderful season, but in 60 games. That's never happened before either. And until our hitters start to make the adjustment that I have to put this ball in play, I have to hit it over there then we're going to still have more than three no-hitters this year. We're going to have a record strikeout rate. But to finish, you cannot make that adjustment that a hitter needs to make when you're facing Max Scherzer tonight. He's going to eat you for lunch, and he's going to carve you to pieces if you try to get away from the way you've been swinging for the last 15 years and try something else tonight. It doesn't work that way. 
I think you have to outlaw the shifts. I think you have to have feet on the dirt. I agree with that. You know, I agree with the, the, that proposal because you're taking away hits from people all the time. There was a statistic that was given to me yesterday to prep for the show that there are fewer hits now on batted balls, fewer hits than any time in the last 30 years. Not counting strikeouts, just balls put in play, fewer hits. What do you make of yeah, that? Yeah, and Tony, we're going back to 1968, the year of the pitcher, which I remember yeah. vividly. Yeah. But those players, I love those players back then, but they're not as good as today's players. That's where the perspective has to come in. If, if and I'm sure they are, our players are bigger, stronger, faster, and better than ever, then they shouldn't be hitting 232 as a group. And again, this is mostly about the overpowering start pitching that we see everywhere in the big leagues every single night. But when you're getting your butt kicked that many times, you're going to have to say, all right, I got to try something else here because the old way usually doesn't work, especially when Jacob deGrom, Max Scherzer are pitching. I mean, you have virtually no chance against those guys when they locate everything with that incredible stuff. You mentioned 68. The reaction by baseball after 1968 was radical. They lowered the mound. We have not, in all those ensuing years, seen anyone win 30 games or 31 games. We have not, in all those ensuing years, seen a 1.12 ERA over the course of the entire season. Radical surgery would be to move the mound back. You are a traditionalist. Would you endorse moving the mound back? No, absolutely not. Now, I'm all for trying it in the minor league, but I'm sorry, Tony. We've been pitching from this distance since 1893, and the game has been awfully good for all those years. And now we're going to tell a pitcher who's been pitching from 60 feet, 6 inches, like Clayton Kershaw, for his entire child-slash-adult life, from age maybe 12 on, oh, we're now going to move you back a foot. These guys are absolutely so precise in everything that they do, absolute creatures of habit. And now we're going to tell them, all right, we're going to move this back a foot. That's a terrible idea. And people are going to get hurt doing it, even though some of the studies say, no, they'll be fine back there. No, they won't. They're competitive people. And when you move them back a foot, and instead of throwing 96, they're throwing 91, and they're going to say, i got to throw harder. So we're going to have even more max effort, and then we're going to get even more pitchers hurt. So I think we should try it in the minor leagues. We should try everything in the minor leagues. But I have no interest in seeing that in a big league game. Get you out of here on this, and you brought it up. A lot of people are hurt. A lot of pitchers, a lot of hitters, people are out. Why is that? Why is it so pronounced this year? Tony, it's, it's a paradox. The more we try to protect, protect our pitchers and our players, the more often they get hurt. Of course, we've conditioned them that if they feel a twinge of any kind, they're coming out of the game. We have conditioned them to not pitch on anything less than five days rest, four days rest, which maybe, maybe Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, Warren Spahn had it right. The more you throw, the stronger your arm gets. Who knows? But I'm, I'm really worried. Every day, a really good player goes down, and it's not a good thing for the game. Plus, Jim Palmer always told me, look, the best pitchers are long and lean and loose, like him, 
Dennis Martinez, and a bunch of other guys in baseball history. Now we see guys who are so ripped, they're so jacked, and their pitchers, you know, they're just so tightly wound that maybe that's why they're getting hurt. That's why our position players are getting hurt. Everyone should look like me, and no one would get hurt. (laughs) Thank you, Tim. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Tim Kirkchin, boys and girls. Uh, We will take a break. We will come back with email and jingle. I am Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Michelob Ultra read. In sports, if you think joy only happens after you win, think again. Look at the world's most successful athletes. They don't spend all their days grinding away. They take the time to enjoy themselves, like having a Michelob Ultra with friends, because they know that happiness is the key to winning and that joy is the whole game, not just the end game. In my life as a sports writer and somebody on television, I can think of two teams that exemplified this more than others. And I don't want you to get the wrong impression because to be a professional athlete means you have to work very, very hard at it. You're in an extraordinarily narrow slice of accomplishment when you reach the pros. But having fun is important as well. I would give you two. I would give you the 2019 Nats who every time they hit a home run, danced in the dugout. And when they danced in the dugout, the camera stayed on them. And it made all of us who rooted for the team very happy. And there was a sidebar to that. If Adam Eaton or Howie Kendrick were involved in a play that resulted in a run, they sat next to each other on the bench, and they did a power shift as if they were driving a car. And that, too, gave them great joy and gave us as viewers great joy. The obvious other example is the 85 Bears, maybe the greatest single-season team in the NFL when they put together the Super Bowl shuffle, and everyone went, oh, my God, you can't do that. That's going to jinx you. you got to keep your nose to the grindstone. But no, they were the best team ever. They went through the playoffs something like 91 to 10, and even Wilbon knows how good they were, and I don't get angry when he says it. So that is the great joy that you can take from sports. Michelob Ultra. 95 calories, 2.6 grams of carbs. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. This This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. He's got your emails and your notes. He'll read them for all you folks. Because it's the mailbag. That's Sean himself. That is so wonderful, Sean. So wonderful. And through the magic of tape, we don't have Nigel, but yet Nigel can do the Bethesda Bagel ad, can't he? Let's see if yes, he's surprised. Yes, Sonny Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you, then pop on in, and you'll be thrilled. So freaky. I feel attacked. I did the, I did the bagel run this you, morning. You got the bagels I waited in line. I brought them over to the house. Just great. Yeah, but you didn't get to do the bagel no. ad. Nigel did. Uh, Nigel has left us with this set of lyrics. When rain has hung the leaves with tears, I want you near to kill my fears, to help me to leave all my blues behind. For standing in your heart is where I want to be, and I long to be. Ah, but I may as well try and catch the wind. That is the greatest song Donovan ever wrote. He was not the Scottish Bob Dylan, but that song 
is a great, great song, Catch the Wind. Thanks to our guests today, Barry Sverluga and Tim Kirkchin. Thanks as well to our sponsors today, Simply Safe, Policy Genius, Michelob Ultra. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through iTunes, please leave us a review. From John Goldblum, MD, Chairman, Department of Pathology, Cleveland Clinic. I just heard your story about your ankle, and this scenario is extremely common. As a many-year listener to your podcast, an even longer viewer of PTI, and more importantly, a visitor to Chatter back in the day, I am more than willing to facilitate any visits to the Cleveland Clinic if ever needed, where I've been employed for almost 30 years and serve as chair of the Department of Pathology. As you may know, this is a world-class institution. We have worked extremely hard to improve access to our facilities. I'd be more than happy to facilitate this if you deem it necessary stay well we need you isn't that nice oh yeah that's really nice cleveland clinic is very famous and by the way i did get a call from my insurance company yesterday i shouldn't say i got a call i called them they denied yeah of course they denied um, my ability to get an mri on my ankle even though my doctor prescribed it. and why did they do that i mean this is going to sound cynical because at my age they'd rather i die than pay for medical treatments you know, because I'm at that age where I need a lot of medical treatment. I'm so, surprised they said that. You know, they didn't say that. I said that. They didn't say that. From Bob Gray in Prince Edward Island in Canada. I am sure that I'm the 4,000th Canadian to write and say we feel your pain in dealing with insurance companies. Oh, wait. No, we don't. Sorry, couldn't resist. Much love and gratitude for the fabulous show over the decades. Their their medical system is different Now, have you tried ours. the compression socks for golf yet? No. I have the regular compression socks on that go all the way up to my knees. But not the short ones. No, I don't have any short ones. Do you have short ones? I was going to order you them, but you never, you never picked sorry. out your pair. I got to get the new Hera in first, then I'll take care of my what foot. What was that? Justin Johnson in Arlington, Virginia. Did you consider just purchasing the entire radiology center on the spot <laughs> and telling the guy helping you to get out? Andrew Cunningham, Athens, That's Georgia. Minutes. Regarding the insurance situation with your MRI, the reason they won't wouldn't allow you to pay for it is because there's a pending decision on the approval of the procedure. They told you that. The rep said if the insurance company denied coverage, you could pay for it. They had to wait and see what the decision would be by the insurance company. If you'd paid for it and then the insurance company approved the procedure, there'd be a big mess and it'd probably take months to get resolved. P.S. I'm not an insurance professional, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express. From Ryan Popovich in Las Vegas, Nevada. Have you thought about buying the MRI store? In your words, to be able to get your MRI performed, you could also fire the person who told you they had to wait for your insurance to approve it. Or you could buy the insurance company and fire the people who took too long to approve your MRI. Do they know who you are? As a side note, I've recently taken up golf. In two rounds, I've broken four clubs. Is that talent or what? It reminds me when people say you can just buy this because, you know, I'd like to buy a house and tell the people in it they have 20 minutes to get out. In Pink Cadillac by Bruce Springsteen, at some point he says, you know, don't you, you can't tempt me with money because, baby, I got plenty of that. Alex Lau in New York City. Um, as you get older and older, I can't wait to welcome with open arms the inevitable increasing amount of discussion regarding your doctor visits, insurance debacles, and eventually how a worker at Ingleside shorted you on the jello or how they won't stop playing that damn piano. Information for life or at least the end of it. Steve Dent in Wilmington, Delaware. Talk about phone scripts. My aunt passed away on Christmas Day a few years ago. I called her cellular service and explained that I was calling to cancel my aunt's cell phone plan. After doing so, the man asked me, is there anything they could do to keep my aunt's business? Yeah, bring her back along with the ghost of Bismarck. Yeah. From Charlie Burtz in Springfield, Virginia. I always forget 
What time of year do they do the Toy Hall of Fame nominations? I am so hopeful that this is the year we'll finally see the selection of the Jimmy and Rosalind Carter figurines. They're so lifelike, so damn cute. All about perspective. From Andy Shaner in Madison, Wisconsin, count me in as a hearty second to the emailer who nominated you to appear on Bill Simmons' Rewatchables podcast. I've been a loyal little for 20 years, and my wife won't listen to a single episode of this show, but she loves the rewatchables. They've already done The Godfather and Michael Clayton, but that thing you do would be an excellent choice. The only problem is most of Bill's guests for the past year have been appearing on Zoom, which would get a little freakish. I'm not a Zoom guy. Uh, From Steve Tomaskovich in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Just yesterday, I was on a call with my employer's new CEO. As he was introducing himself, he mentioned he was born and raised in Buffalo. Imagine my surprise when the next words out of his mouth were, a real Midwestern city. As you may remember from your time upstate, Buffalo is very near Toronto. Please mark Will Bond down as not surprised. From Brian Kissel in Ellicott City, Maryland. I got the Finch right here. The name is not Revere. And here's a guy that says if the weather's clear, can chirp, can chirp. The guy says the Finch can chirp. If he says the Finch can chirp, can chirp. That's just wonderful. Uncle Arnie. Uncle Arnie. And from Patrick Sitter in Sioux Falls, uh, South Dakota, right? Sioux Falls is in South Dakota. Dear Grandpa, full moon aficionado, put this on your calendar, May 26th, the triple threat moon. It will be the only full moon in May, affectionately called the full flower moon. It will also be the year's biggest super moon when the full moon is closest to Earth and therefore appears biggest in the sky. And most of all, if you live in Australia or the Western United States or Western South America and Southeast Asia, you will be able to watch a total lunar eclipse unfold, a blood moon that appears red and rusty in the night sky. I know you're a blood moon kind of guy, so I'm certain Michael will assist with any travel plans. So you should get... The hammer needs that moon. You should take them out, Bootsy and the hammer, to see in, in their young age they would they could see this. like wolves the plot they would howl perhaps at the moon if you're out on your bike tonight everyone as always do wear white later he gets the rebound passes it to the man shoots it and boom goes the dynamite
the answers I'm needing Run from my searching Are they buried somewhere deep in my soul? Why am I trying? I never stop trying So why does it feel like I'll never leave? Why am I trying? Enduring this hurting So why does it
exhausted my ground. I'm waiting for the sun to come, and I will not be there. 